0: All right, well, if you have a Bible with you today, uh, I hope that you do. Let me invite you to open up to Lamentations chapter three. Lamentations chapter three. We are back in this uh, deep and profound book today, Lamentations. We've been away from this book for for two weeks now. Uh, In that time, uh, we have wrapped up our series in the book of Philemon. Thank you for walking us through that, Pastor Levi. And then last week, we explored uh, the book of Second Corinthians together, and so thank you, uh, Nathan, for, for that word. Uh, but now we return to this uh, heavy book uh, in what has been a, a very deep and, and heavy season for us here in Taiwan and in Korea. Uh, and if you were with us as we walked through the first two chapters of the book, you know that it's not an easy read. Uh, in, in fact, it's pretty uncomfortable. And in that, in that, the book has raised all sorts of, of questions for us about how we should view God, how we are to understand him, and beyond that, how we are to understand our, ourselves. Lamentations is all about God's wrath, his judgment. It's about our idols, about dealing with our sin, and that's why we are in this book together in this particular season, to help us to consider once again Or for maybe the very first time, what are we actually living for? And what is blocking our path to living our lives fully for him and for him alone? Now, uh, one of the things that's essential for us to understanding this book is the historical and spiritual context uh, of Lamentations. Uh, So if you want the the full picture uh, of that, you need to go back and listen to week one Uh, Of the sermon series. But just to give you a quick snapshot, we know that uh, Jerusalem's destruction was not just this like small, ordinary defeat. No, not at all, right? It was God's, we talked about this both weeks, it was God's climactic divine discipline for his people after centuries of warning and patience. And without question, this destruction that we are brought into in this book is the most severe, devastating event in the entire Old Testament. God's people felt like it was a complete uh, severing from God's promises. It felt like a complete loss of their identity. Uh, It was just totally devastating. And it's out of that devastation, that ruin, uh, that grief that we get the cry of lamentations, this communal expression, this outcry of, of pain that rises up, rises out of the aftermath of Jerusalem's destruction. And so that's the context of the book. And now today we turn to chapter three. And what we're gonna find here, what we're gonna find here in chapter three is that this chapter is both the center of the book positionally, But more importantly, it's the center of the book theologically. Uh, I am so thankful, so thankful for this text in the middle of Lamentations, because through all of the pain and suffering, what we learn, the message of Lamentations, is that there is hope. Today, we're going to get some serious help when it comes to learning how to face heartache, learning how to face difficulty learning how to face disappointment and and pain, serious help. Because this text we're going to see today, this text actually tackles the question, how do we not only survive, but how do we spiritually thrive in the midst of our pain and suffering? It speaks to us about our thoughts, our thoughts, our, 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 our thought pattern in seasons of pain, and what should guide our hearts when we are fighting with daily struggles. That's what today is all about. So it's good that you're here today, right? We, we need this. We need this, right? Because why? Because we all struggle, right? We all face hard seasons. We all face trying seasons, heartaches in our lives. And so how do we thrive during those times? And let me just say this as well before we, we jump in. Uh, times of pain and sorrow are revealing. They're revealing. Uh, those times show us, they reveal to us who We really are. Those seasons actually surface what we believe about God, which is why we not only need this, but it's why this book and this text today is so important, because it uncovers our hearts. And so, with that said, let's enter into today. Uh, And my hope for us is that you, along with me, would be believing that God has great things in store for us through His Word. So, we open chapter three, and What I want us to do, there's a lot of verses today, and you know, usually we're going to go through verse by verse. We don't have the time to do that. And so what I want to do is for us to first and foremost notice the difference between how the destruction of Jerusalem is viewed in the beginning of the chapter as opposed to the end of the chapter. And so look with me at how the book starts, the first five verses. It says this, the author says, I am the man who has seen affliction under the rod of his wrath. He has driven and brought me into darkness without any light. Surely against me, he turns his hand again and again the whole day long. He has made my flesh and my skin waste away. He has broken my bones. He has besieged and enveloped me with bitterness and tribulation. Or in verse 18, the author says, my endurance has perished. So has my hope from the Lord. So we see here that the author is is echoing what we talked about or what we saw in the first two chapters of this book. There is deep-seated, true, genuine pain here. There is this wrestling in regards to what God has done. The the judgment of God has become personal now. It's overwhelming such that there, there seems to be no peace at all. There's no happiness, not a drop of it. There's no hope, he says. And the grief of the moment is relentless. It's ongoing, like it'll never end. But then, then, it's interesting. Compare that to how the author closes the book. I want us to see how the perspective changes. And be mindful here. It's so important as we work through the text today. Be mindful here. The city is still destroyed. The people are still in pain. There's ruin all over. But look at how the author shifts. He says this. Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that good and bad have come? Why should a living man complain, a man, about the punishment of his sins? And then look down at verse 55. I called on your name, O Lord, from the depths of the pit. You heard my plea. Do not close your ear to my cry for help. You came near when I called on you. You said, do not fear. Listen, you have taken up my cause, O Lord. You have redeemed my life. You hear the difference there? There is still pain and struggle here, but the the tone has drastically changed. There is a notable move of of heart here, and that leads us to a very important question, one that is central to this text, and that is simply, what has changed? Why this sudden hope? Again, the situation hasn't changed. The, The circumstances haven't shifted. There is still pain and anguish. Jerusalem has been ruined. God's temple is still destroyed up in smoke and flames the people have been conquered they're on their way in exile back to Babylon but the attitude and perspective of all of these happenings has shifted and so again what has changed well enter into verse 21 verse 21 is actually the pivot point of the entire book And it helps us answer the question, what changed? And I believe that once we finish working through this section, you'll see, you'll see that biblical lament not only expresses your heart, helps you express your heart, but actually helps shape and form your your heart as well. It's gonna teach us how to thrive in the midst of our pain and our suffering. And so the author writes these profound, beautiful words. Chapter three, verse 21, he says this. But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. I want us to notice a few things about the, this verse in particular. Remember, and I am going to say this again and again and again today, but there is real pain, there is real suffering being experienced here. And then seemingly out of nowhere, we get the word, but, but. And that word is key. It's the central verse. It's the central word to the book. He says, but, but this I call to mind, call to mind. It's the Hebrew word for return, recall. It's the Hebrew word for remember. And it's doing that very thing, not just flippantly, but from the very core, They're very center of your being. This is all about the heart. In other words, this is talking about rehearsing or recalling what one really believes in the depths of their being. And this calling, this calling to mind, he says, creates hope. And I have to say there, this is really, really central as well, the way we use hope, I want us to understand this, the way that we culturally use hope is so much different than the way the Bible, the scriptures use that word hope. See, when we use the word hope, we're usually talking about wishful thinking. Okay? Hope is equated to wishful thinking. It's like, uh, for me personally, I really hope the Yankees win the World Series. Okay? They haven't in a long time. Okay, but I hope, I, I hope, I hope that the weather is good this winter. Right? That's wishful thinking, but biblical hope is more of a, it's a confident expectation. Okay, that is hope. It's a confident expectation, and that's because biblical hope is based on a person, which means hope is not attached to my situation or my circumstances, but hope is attached to the one in who I put my hope in. You see that? The author of Lamentations is devastated it's a hopeless situation there is no doubting that from the text and yet yet he chooses hope anyway he looks forward in hope by looking back at God and God's character and we're going to talk about that in just a minute what he specifically calls to mind but for now I simply want you to realize the significance of this here Lamentations is leading us towards a very important and very practical truth that when life becomes difficult, when life becomes challenging, hope can still be found and hope can still be had. Why? Because hope is not rooted in what you see. Hope is not rooted in what you feel. Hope is found and rooted in what you believe or who you believe in. Listen, when we lament, and we should practice lamenting, when we lament, we mourn the thing, the event, the circumstance that happened. We should do that. But simultaneously, our lamenting is anchored that grief should be anchored in the bedrock of God's character and his promise of future restoration. So again, what this means is that it is possible It is possible for us to lead our hearts and our minds towards hope. We can bring ourselves to hope. We can do that by returning back to the truth. Some of you have heard of the name A.W. Tozer before. He was a great pastor and theologian. Perhaps some of you have read his works. If not, you should. You should have his stuff on your bookshelf. But one of the things... Uh, that he wrote and said and he's well known for this uh, this quote Um, it stuck with me throughout my life and ministry he said this it's the idea that what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us say that again what what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us and why why would that be well Because whatever you believe about God will ultimately shape and form your current reality. Whatever you believe about God will determine how you see yourself and your current circumstances. And that's precisely what we see here in Lamentations 3. God, I am broken. God, I feel lost. I am empty. I am hopeless, literally hopeless. I don't understand what you're doing and and why you're doing this. But, but this I call to mind and therefore I have hope. And so what's the this here in the text? What does the author of Lamentations recall to find hope in the middle of his suffering? Well, I want to show you three things. Three heart-changing truths here that I want to show you. So first of all, we see God's unending mercy and his steadfast love. You want to thrive in your season of suffering? You not just survive, but thrive, flourish in your seasons of suffering spiritually? Call to mind that God is unending in mercy and steadfast in his love. And we get this from the most familiar verse in the book, thanks to a well-known hymn. Okay, Very well-known. Verses 22 through 23 says, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. These are stunning verses, especially when we consider the context here. The author has every reason to question God's love. He has every reason to question God's mercy, right? Should I remind you again that everything has been destroyed, everything has been ruined, but he doesn't let his present circumstances determine for him what is true. Now, as we look at verse 22, we see here that the author says the same thing, really, in two different ways, First, he says that the steadfast love of the Lord never ends. Steadfast love. We've talked about this word every time we come to it in the scriptures. Um, It's worth repeating, though. It's the word, the Hebrew word, has has said. And it's a word that describes God's faithful love, it describes his covenantal love for his people. This love that is deeply rooted in the foundation of his being, of his character. It's a love that is unwavering, a love that is unshifting, and it never ends. It never stops. It's ongoing. And because it's a covenantal love, it means that, this is so, so good, it means that it's not conditional or dependent on our works. It doesn't depend on our morality. It doesn't depend on your faithfulness. This love is entirely dependent on God's supreme mercy and grace. And then there's this little semicolon there and he says his mercies never come to an end. And this is very similar to him referring to God's steadfast love, but mercy here is more closely related to God's compassion. It's all to do with his kindness that God actually chooses to move towards those who are his, uh, though we have earned it, right? And the good news is there is no bottom. There's no bottom to this merciful kindness. It just keeps flowing, overflowing towards us. And so putting this together, we might say, it would be right for us to say that God has a warehouse, if you will, that is filled with mercy and unwavering, steadfast love. And that warehouse never runs dry. It never goes empty. And beyond that, this love and mercy, he says, it is new every morning. It literally means that this love and mercy is fresh. That's what it means. It's, it's fresh, freshly baked for you each and every day. You don't get stale dry love with the Lord. Every morning, there is fresh provision. Every morning, there's fresh love, fresh grace because we need them every single day. And so the author of Lamentations to that, to that truth, those truths says, great, great is your faithfulness. And let me just say this in English. Uh, great can mean so many things, right? We struggle with the English language with words like love and great, good, all that. But great can mean so many things. Like, hey, have you tried that new restaurant down the street? They have great burgers, right? Or in sports, you know, I'll use another sports reference. Oh, that's a great play. Have you watched the replay? It's a great play, right? But in the scriptures, great means abundant. It means abounding, Right? By the way, I'm not expecting you to write all of this down, right? all of these definitions. I just want you to be overwhelmed by God today. Right? Just overwhelmed by it. Our God is abounding in faithfulness. That's what he's saying. He is absolutely and constantly loyal to those who are His. He never gives up on his children. He is utterly and completely, perfectly faithful. Psalm 36.5 says, Your steadfast love, O Lord, extends to the heavens, your faithfulness to the clouds. And so in light of all of this, the author of Lamentations sums up this short section by saying this in verse 24. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will have hope in him. Bottom line of what he says there, the Lord is all that I have, and that's enough. I am living on God's grace and God's grace alone. He is my treasure. He is my reward. So this, this is what God is like. And therefore, therefore, we should let his unending, merciful, steadfast, loving faithfulness, grow hope in us. And if you don't, if you're here today and you you don't feel hope in considering these things, the encouragement of this text is recall and consider them until you do. Sit in these truths until you do find hope because it's the only thing that will actually give you lasting and real hope. So listen, in the midst of pain, we must remind ourselves that God's mercy never ends. His faithfulness is greater than my faithlessness. His forgiveness is greater than my trespasses. And his mercy is greater than what we deserve. Therefore, our hope in the midst of trials, the hope in our midst of suffering, is not, is not in a change of my circumstances. My hope is found based on the unending mercy and steadfast love of our Father God. Our second heart-changing truth, something we can recall if you want to thrive in the midst of your suffering and pain, number two, our waiting is not a waste. It's the second truth I want us to meditate on today, that your waiting, my waiting, is not a waste. Something you can't see, In the English translation there is the fact that verses 25 through 27, recall again, remember, this is all poetry. But verses 25 through 27 all actually begin with the same word. Not in English, but in Hebrew. It all begins, each verse, 25, 26, 27, with the word good. And so obviously the author wants us to know that something is good here. And what is that? Well, look at verse 25. It says, The Lord, the Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. It is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. And so what is good? What is good? He tells us to wait on the Lord, to wait for him, to place our hope in Him, And just so we are clear with the context, uh, that phrase salvation of the Lord is not in regards to our eternal salvation, okay? The context here is rescue from challenging circumstances, okay? It's about deliverance from pain and suffering. And so what the author is literally saying here is, it is good that one should wait to be rescued from difficult circumstances. It is good to trust in the one who can actually deliver you from your present reality. Psalm 62, one says, for God alone, my soul waits in silence. From him comes my rescue or my salvation. We wait upon the Lord because he is God and we are not. And isn't, it that? Isn't it that reality which makes waiting so, so difficult? I don't know about you, but waiting, waiting feels as if you are doing nothing. But when we wait, we are actually doing one of the greatest things that a follower of Jesus can do. Because waiting requires that you put your trust, your hope, and your confidence in the Lord. Because understand Waiting. This waiting here is not just like this um, passive sitting down. It's not like waiting. It's not like twiddling your thumbs or or looking at your watch, wondering why God isn't showing up right in your life. Right to wait on the Lord is all about a prayerful and faithful posture of the heart. It's it's deep trust. It, it's hope. It's this confident assurance that he will change our circumstances until he does change our circumstances. Amen. And that isn't me saying that waiting is easy. Okay. Not at all. It's not personally. I don't like waiting for anything. Okay. But, but God in his infinite wisdom has actually built waiting into our experience of him. Psalm 27, 14 says, wait for the Lord, be strong, and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. Or Isaiah chapter 40, verse three. So many of us know this text. The, they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. Meaning, listen now, listen. Your waiting today, our waiting today is not a waste. That actually part of our waiting Part of our waiting is connected, connected to our experience of the goodness of God. That's what the author is saying here in Lamentations. And so don't miss this. One of the painful, painful realities of our suffering, our seasons of pain, is the waiting that comes along with that pain and suffering. But if God's providence requires you to wait, remind your heart that there is so much good that can come out of waiting for the Lord. There are so many lessons that the Lord desires to teach us through our waiting, things that will ultimately draw us closer to him, things that will will ultimately draw us to looking more like him. I mean, think about the entirety of the scriptures, the entire narrative of the scriptures. Abraham and Sarah waited 25 years for their promised child, Isaac, 25 years. Isaac and Rebekah waited 20 years for Jacob and Esau to be born. David, this king, David, we always talk about, this heroic story, here's what we forget. David waited 15 years. after the promise that he would be king, he should be king. He was God's king. He waited 15 years to be appointed as king. Moses waited 40 years, 40 years to lead the Israelites out of Egypt. Listen, God, when he ran and fled from Egypt, God didn't call him back to Egypt to lead the people until he was in his 80s. His 80s. Right? Some of you are looking for a retirement. God's not done with you, right? He used the guy in his 80s. So again, in the midst of your pain, in seasons of suffering, preach to your heart, that waiting upon the Lord is not a waste. This this Christian life is rooted in waiting. We are between even now, the now experiencing eternal life and the not yet, the fulfillment of that eternal life. This life is about waiting. So preach to your heart, waiting upon the Lord is not a waste. Well, then the final truth that needs to be rehearsed or should be rehearsed, if you want to thrive in seasons of suffering, it's found in verses 31 through 33. It says there, It says there, for the Lord will not cast off forever. But though he cause grief, he will have compassion according to the abundance of his steadfast love. And hear this, for he does not afflict from his heart or grieve the children of men. There is so much there. But what we ultimately learn, and I believe should take away from these verses, is really simple but profound truth today. So simple. And that is this. God is always good. I tried to be a thought of ways to creatively say that. I just came back to this. Our final heart-changing truth today, God is always good. The author is now addressing he pivots a little bit. He shifts a little bit because now he addresses what we believe about the future. Because you see, part of the grief, part of the, the, the suffering that we go through is the fear, and some of you have, can relate to this, but it's this fear in the middle of suffering that it will never end. It's this fear in the midst of grief and, and pain that my suffering, my pain has, has no real purpose It has no lasting meaning, which is why we need to recall the truth that is found here in verse 31. Again, it says, for the Lord will not cast off forever. It says, he will have compassion. That's so encouraging. What he is telling us there is that all of our suffering, all of our suffering, if you are in Christ, has a purpose. And all of our suffering today actually has a limit. It has an expiration date. This reminds us that God has a plan for his people, that he is full of compassion that is again rooted in his unending steadfast love. And beyond that, what this text tells us specifically in verse 33 is that all of the destruction, all of the chaos, all of the ruin did not come from a heart that enjoys the pain that was brought on his people, not at all. God is not in heaven and was not in heaven taking delight in the discipline of his children. Rather, he was doing all of this because of his loving purposes. That's what we're told here. He could, understand this today, God could not allow Israel, he could not allow Israel to continue in their sin. And so he did what was necessary to stop them. Look, I know, especially if you're new to the faith, or if you're a non-believer here, some of us who have been a follower of Jesus for a long time, this is a difficult truth to wrap our minds around. But God did not punish them because he was this like mean, hard-hearted, cold, and distant father. He did this because he loved them. He did this because he wanted be- what was best for them. He did this because he is so, so good. And actually, you know, to be honest, I think we, we really do understand this because we actually expect this type of behavior out of good earthly fathers, don't we? Right? if we have children here who disobey or go astray or they start moving in the wrong direction with their lives, A good, good father doesn't just let that child go. A good father steps in the gap, doesn't he? A good father intervenes. A good father gets in the way. A good father corrects. A good father disciplines. A good father sets their children back on the straight and narrow path. And this is exactly what God, our father, does for us. Look, God intended, he fully intended and intends to save his people. And by the way, we know what the people of Lamentations and the author didn't know. We know that he does eventually make a way back. God does eventually make a way back to himself for his people. He rescues them. He redeems them. But before that happens, he needed their hearts to be ready to listen to him again. He allowed pain and suffering to enter into their lives. He actually wounded them to to peel back the hardened calluses that had covered, masked their hearts, right? This was all part of his good plan. And if you are here and you are a follower of Jesus today, similarly, every single thing in your life somehow and in some way is also part of God's plan for his good purposes in and through you. He does not enjoy your struggle. He does not smile at your pain-filled tears. But, but, those tears are producing something good in you. And it all comes from the good heart of a God who loves you. So do you see now, do you see now how what we think about God is actually the most important thing about us. Do you see how what we believe about him informs actually our pain and our suffering? We have a God who is unendingly merciful, a God who is steadfast in his loving faithfulness, a God who we are told is supremely good. And how can we be certain of that? How can we be certain that this is still true? How can we be sure, assured that the God of Lamentations is that same God for you and I today? Well, it's a simple answer. Look at the cross. For it's at the cross where we see God's ultimate, unending mercy, his ultimate steadfast love, and his great faithfulness. His supreme goodness is found at the foot of the cross. At the cross, we see God's mercy in in dying to save those that deserved only judgment and eternal punishment. At the cross, we see God's unwavering love in losing his life that we might gain true life. At the cross, we see his faithfulness in, in keeping his promises to love us based on his commitment to us, not on our commitment to him. Thank you, thank you, Jesus. Right? At the cross, we see his goodness. We see his goodness in that he is willing to actually forgive rebellious sinners, but not only just forgive us, he is so good that he actually makes us his own and has made a way for you and I to be with him forever and ever. So today, today, if all seems lost, the message of the cross is there is hope. If all seems dark, the message of the cross is there is hope. If there seems to be no end to your pain and your suffering, the message of the cross is there is hope. You're stuck in repeated sin today. There is hope. Our city is in great despair. There is hope. There's brokenness in your relationships. There's hope. Loved ones are sick. There's hope. Family and friends in your life who are far away from the face of God. There is hope. Hear me now. Hear me now as we close. These are encouraging words from Pastor Tim Keller. He's a pastor of Redeemer Church in New York City. He says this: We may hear our hearts say, "It's hopeless." But we should argue back at our hearts. We should say, well, that depends what you were hoping in. Was that the right thing to put so much hope in? Notice how the psalmist in Psalm 42 analyzes his own hopes. Why are you so cast down, O my soul? And notice that he admonishes himself. Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him. The psalmist is talking to his heart, telling it to go to God, looking to God. Church family, hope springs forth. Hope comes about from truth rehearsed. Hope comes forward from truth recalled. So what message are you preaching to yourself today? Especially in times of despair, especially in times of pain and sorrow, in seasons of struggle, let me encourage you to preach to your heart what is real. Preach to your heart what is true. Preach to your heart what is right. You want to thrive in your suffering? Call to mind who God is. Call to mind what God has done. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, therefore, I will hope. I will hope in him. Let me pray for you.